Well, this morning, I want to speak to you about baptism. We are having a baptism service coming up in a couple weeks, and you know, every so often, I just feel like I've got to bring the heat when it comes to uh, baptism, and, and I've only really done it twice since we started the church, so it's not like I do this every other week, but uh, every once in a while, I feel like it's important for us to be reminded of what the Bible teaches about baptism. And so just to kind of get us moving in that direction, I wanted just to read something to you that, that is not intended to offend anyone, uh, really just to have some fun with some of the well-known stereotypes of certain church denominations. So I want to ask the question this morning, how many uh, of particular denomination does it take to change a light bulb? This is the light bulb quiz, all right? How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one since their hands are already in the air. Uh, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? None. God has predestined when the lights will be on and when they'll be off. How many Baptists uh, does it take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> how many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None. They always use candles. Uh, how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to actually change the bulb and nine to say how much they like the old one. How many United Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? We choose not to make a statement either in favor of or against the need of a light bulb. <laughs> However, if in your own journey you have found that a light bulb works for you, that's fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your personal relationship to your light bulb and present it next month at our annual Light Bulb Sunday service in which we'll explore a number of light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence through Jesus Christ. <laughs> How many Church of Christ members does it take to change a light bulb? None, because there's no evidence that light bulbs were ever changed in New Testament times. Well, anyway, that is just kind of some fun with, you know, denominationalism, and we know that uh, there are so many different denominations because there are so many different beliefs and practices and traditions and issues that people don't agree on in the church. One of those issues, one of those practices that has caused some of the greatest controversy throughout the history of the church is that of baptism. And as an independent Bible teaching church, you need to understand that what we believe about baptism is not based on the teaching or tradition of any particular denomination. It is based solely on what the Bible teaches. Much of what is believed and practiced today regarding baptism is based on certain ecclesiastical traditions or denominational views or even uh, some theological system. And if these traditions and views and systems are in line with the Bible, then they should be believed and practiced. But if they're inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, then they must be rejected. And so we need to make sure that our understanding of baptism is not just traditional, it's not denominational, or even just theological. It must be purely biblical. And so this morning, I want to just show you what the Bible says about baptism, and, and even more importantly, what the Bible doesn't say about baptism. And the reason why I say it that way is because every incorrect view of baptism is the result of making the Bible say what it doesn't say about baptism. And so the simplest way I can do this in my mind is just to answer some questions about baptism, okay? And I've got five questions that I want to answer about baptism. And some of you, hopefully most of you, grabbed that outline on the back table as you walked in that you can use kind of to take some notes this morning. And on the back side, it has those application questions 
uh, for your discussion tonight in Grow Group or tomorrow, uh, or maybe just in your own personal quiet time this week to work through. But let's go ahead and answer these five questions about baptism. Number one, what is baptism? Well, the Bible talks about several kinds of baptism. The first one, the most obvious one, hopefully for us, is spirit baptism. And that's when a believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. We see this talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. There's also a, a thing called fire baptism. And this shows up in Matthew chapter 3 uh, in the ministry of John the Baptist. And it describes when an unbeliever is judged by God. By the way, this is not any kind of baptism that you want to have anything to do with, okay? You don't want anything to do with fire baptism, all right? That's, that's the judgment of God for unbelief. But then there's a third kind of baptism, and that's water baptism. And this is when a believer is submerged in water as an outward demonstration of their inward decision to follow Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, water baptism. You say, so what is water baptism? Well, it really is two things. First of all, it's identification. It's identification. Uh, it's identification first and foremost with Jesus Christ. And really what baptism is, is a, it's, a, it's a public confession of a person's commitment to Jesus Christ. It's, it's when, they, when, when we have an opportunity to publicly testify to how we came to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And that's why whenever we do a baptism service, we really the highlight is, is hearing and listening to the testimonies of people and how they came to know Christ. And so it's an identification with Christ, but also it's a, 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 an opportunity to identify with other Christians. And when a person is baptized, what they're doing is they're taking their stand, not just with Christ, but with the rest of his followers. And they're identifying themselves with the church, the body of believers, and saying, hey, listen, I am one of you. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then he went on to say in verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, there should be no secret Christians. There should be no undercover, incognito Christians where you know, somehow you're a Christian but nobody else knows about it. That, it should, that the people around you should know that you're a Christian. It should be a public uh, uh, issue in your life. And, and baptism is one of the best ways that a Christian can show that they're not ashamed of Christ and his church. In, in fact, in the New Testament, getting baptized was the number one way to let everyone else know that you would become a Christian. And back then, oftentimes what would happen is those that got baptized were alienated from their families or they were persecuted and some were even killed for choosing to follow Christ. And the way that they were found out was because of their baptism, where they made a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so no half-hearted convert to Christ would, would get baptized. I mean, only those who were serious about their commitment to Christ were willing to pay the price to be associated with Christ and his followers. And that's why I believe today that anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ but is unwilling to be baptized should seriously question the genuineness of their commitment to Christ. I mean, how can you say that you, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're ashamed to stand up and testify to that fact? And so, first of all, baptism is identification, but there's more. It, secondly, it's, in, it's an illustration. It's an illustration. 
Uh, Look in Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And Paul is talking about how we as believers are dead to sin and alive to God. And he says in verse 3, this is Romans chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The first thing I want you to know about these verses is that that based on the context, it's, it's likely that this is not talking about water baptism, but it's talking about spirit baptism. This is what one of my seminary professors called a dry verse, okay? There's no water here. This is talking about spirit baptism, which water baptism is an illustration of. And what is he saying here? Is that we, as Christians, are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it means when we're in Christ, and, and when we are saved, when the Spirit of God regenerates us and, in, and in baptizes us and indwells us, it, it's as if we died with Christ and we were buried with Christ and we were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And so, so baptism, water baptism, is really a physical illustration of that spiritual reality. And, 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 and what, what, is ha- what happens when we're, when we're saved is that we die to our old way of life and we rise up to walk in newness of life. And so baptism by immersion is a beautiful, powerful illustration of dying with Christ and being buried with Christ and being raised back to life to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so baptism does not secure our salvation. It merely is a symbol of our salvation. It's like this thing I've got on my my finger here. It's called a wedding ring, right? Putting, if I was to go down here and, and find one of these young guys that's not married yet, and I, and I slip this on their finger, does that mean that they're married because they have a wedding ring on? No, this, this just, it doesn't make them married, right, by putting this thing on. It doesn't make you married. You have to be married in order to have one of these things, right? And this simply shows everyone else that you are married. In the same way, getting baptized doesn't make you a believer, but it shows other people that you are a believer. Now, I say all that because there are some churches that teach that a person must be baptized in order to be saved. I mean, they believe that a person is saved when they get baptized. It's what's referred to as baptismal regeneration, a term that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. But, but this is an heretical view which is taught and practiced by the Catholic Church, the the Episcopal Church, uh, some sects of the Lutheran Church. I grew up in a Lutheran church, and and they practiced infant baptism, but they didn't think it was saving the individual or the child. It was just more of a sign of the covenant and things like that. We'll get into that later. Uh, But there are some sects of the Lutheran Church that actually believe that a person is saved uh, when they're baptized, and also the Church of Christ believes this. Now, I'll never forget one, one time out in California that uh, I had a chance to actually witness uh, a baptism of, of a church of Christ. And it's one thing to sit in seminary and, and read about all this stuff in, in books and, and even to preach about it and teach other people, but to actually be a part of a ceremony where you actually see God's word being violated is just stunning. And so it happened one evening, we were, Kelly and I were walking along the beach in Ventura, just north of L.A., and, and uh, we were um, kind of walking down the beach, the sun was setting, it was just a beautiful romantic setting, all of a sudden this huge crowd of people comes out from the parking lot into the beach, I'm like, honey, check that out, that's got to be a baptism. 
They didn't have any kegs, so I knew they weren't like going to party, right? So I walked up to the guy, and I said, one of the guys said, hey, what church are you guys from? They said, we're from the L.A. Church of Christ. I, was, I thought to my mind, my wheels started spinning because I, real, I remembered that the L.A. Church of Christ is very dogmatic about that you must be baptized in order to be saved. I thought, man, I got to watch this. And so I was like, hey, honey, do you mind if I listen to what they're going to say? And she's like, great, once a pastor, always pastor. What happened to our romantic walk? And so she went and sat in the car in the parking lot, and I went down, and I kind of mingled in the crowd, and I sat there, and I heard these incredible testimonies of how these, about these five or six people had come to Christ. And I was moved. It was just touching, these testimonies. And I was all excited, and then the pastor got up, and he said, quote, these people are about to become our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm like going, whoa, wait a minute. Based on what I just heard, they're already your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're my brother. They're my sister uh, because of their testimony in Christ. And then he went on to say this as they were about ready to go out into the water uh, to get baptized. He said, now remember, when they come out of the water, their sins will be left in the Pacific Ocean. I was like, I ain't swimming in the Pacific Ocean ever again, man. I don't get that stuff on me. All your sins are out there. But the, the point is, I was like, what, what in the world? In other words, what that guy was saying is that, that, that these people were not Christians until they got baptized and that their sins were literally washed away through the waters of baptism. Now, this particular group with others have deduced from certain passages of Scripture that a person is saved by being baptized and their sins are cleansed through the waters of baptism. And they, they base their salvation on when, they get, on when they got baptized. You ask a person in these kinds of traditions or these kind of denominational churches, and, and you say, hey, when did you get saved? You say, well, I was baptized. I said, I didn't ask you when you were baptized. I want to know when you got saved. When were you born again? But see, they equate the two as if they're, they're one. And so consequently, they assume that if a person dies before they're baptized, where do they go? They go to hell. That's exactly right. Good job. The little ones on the front row shouting out the truth here. That's good. And, and you say, well, where do they come up with that? How do they draw those conclusions? Well, there are some verses in the scriptures that appear, important, that appear to teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved or that baptism saves you, okay? Let me just read them to you, okay? And you can write them down. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 22.16, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. 1 Peter 3.21 actually says, now baptism saves you. You're like, whoa, this is pretty clear. Why, why don't we believe that, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.29 uh, talks about being baptized for the dead. That's where the Mormons come up with this whole concept of being baptized for dead people to, to help them get to heaven. Um, well, listen, we don't have time this morning to, to go through each one of these verses and, and to show you uh, why that is not the best way to interpret those verses, okay? I would just say this. Those who interpret these verses to mean that a person must be baptized to be saved violate one of the most basic principles of biblical interpretation, and that is the analogy of Scripture, or simply stated, cross-referencing, okay? And we know that the Bible never contradicts itself. So any interpretation of a specific passage that contradicts a general teaching of the rest of Scripture is to be rejected, even if it appears that a certain verse teaches that a person is saved by being baptized, it must mean something else. Why? Well, simply because the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that a person is saved, how? By grace 
through faith alone, not of works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That is a crystal clear passage. And you always let the, the clear passages, the, the passages that are not in question, to help you interpret the verses that are in question, that are kind of vague, that are kind of confusing. You always let the clear ones interpret the confusing ones. And to me, the greatest proof that baptism doesn't save a person is all the verses in the Bible that make it crystal clear that a person is saved by grace through faith alone and the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And baptism would be a work to earn our salvation. Along with this, you have also the story of the thief on the cross who did not get baptized, but was promised by Christ himself that he would what? Enter into paradise along with the Lord. And there's all these other examples in the New Testament where Jesus uh, healed people and, 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 and cast the demon out of people and they expressed faith in him and demonstrated faith in him and he said that their sins were forgiven, they were saved before they ever got baptized. And he declared them forgiven, he declared them saved, he declared that they would go to heaven before they were ever baptized. And so baptism doesn't save anyone. It simply symbolizes outwardly what has already taken place inwardly. The way I like to say it simply, that that baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward decision. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward decision. That's what baptism is. Secondly, why should we get baptized? Well, why should we get baptized? Well, there's, there's two basic reasons in God's word why we should get baptized. First of all, it was modeled and commanded by Christ. Baptism is modeled and commanded by Christ. And if you just look at the history of baptism for a moment, it, it didn't start with Jesus and his disciples, by the way. It, it started with the Israelites. And, and, and if somebody wanted to become an Israelite, a, a Gentile proselyte, wanted to become a Jew... Uh, or, or convert to Judaism, they would have to go through this process of being circumcised, of being baptized by immersion, and then they had to present a sacrifice. And so you can imagine when John the Baptist shows up and, and calls the Jews to repent and be baptized, they're like, what are you talking about? We're, we're the sons of, of Abraham. We're Jews. We don't need to be baptized. And he says, yes, you do, as a demonstration of your repentance from sin and in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist baptized, and then, as you know, Jesus showed up and and told him to baptize him, and John said, I'm not going to baptize you. I'm not worthy to unlatch your sandals. And Jesus said, no, you need to baptize me to fulfill all what? Righteousness. In other words, this was Jesus' way of identifying with sinful humanity. While he was sinless, he was identifying with sinful humanity, and he was prefiguring his death, burial, and resurrection. And then after that, Jesus himself baptized people. In John chapter 3 and 4, it talks about Jesus baptizing people. So he modeled it himself. He also did it. But ultimately, he commanded his disciples to baptize those who became disciples through their ministry and through their evangelistic outreach. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the obviously, obvious implication here is that people got saved first and then they got baptized, right? Go and make disciples of all nations 
And, and so the inference there is that they become a disciple, then the very first thing, they need to get baptized, and then you need to train them and teach them to walk like Christ. So this clear command of Christ in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to all of his followers is why baptism is considered an, an ordinance of the church. And, and when we say ordinance, what we simply mean is something that Christ established or commanded that he wanted his church to practice on a regular basis. And there's really basically two ordinances of the church, two things that Christ commanded us to do on a regular basis. One is baptism and the other is what? Communion, the Lord's Supper. On the night that he was betrayed, he commanded his followers to do this in remembrance of him. And so first of all, we should be baptized because it's modeled and commanded by Jesus Christ. Secondly, it was practiced by the early church. It was practiced by the early church. In other words, the disciples listened to what Jesus said in the Great Commission, and when they went out and began sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, right, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth, what we're learning in the book of Acts, uh, they, they did exactly what Jesus said. They, they, they preached the gospel, and, and they preached the gospel of repentance uh, and faith in Jesus Christ, and when people believed, repented and believed, they would be baptized. They baptized we see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. Go ahead and turn there with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Remember, this, the context here is Peter preaching to uh, this crowd that had gathered in response to them speaking in tongues and, and, and again, speaking other languages and sharing the gospel in, in languages that people that were from all over the world could understand. And they said, what in the world is going on? Are these people drunk? And so Peter was explaining to them uh, what happened, and ultimately that they had, had murdered the Messiah. And so they were brought under conviction, and, and in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 37, they asked him, what shall we do? What do we do now? And then Peter says in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, what must happen before you're baptized. You need to repent, and then you'll be baptized. And notice what it says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And, and you need to understand that that verse, verse 39, is, is, is a verse that some of the people that believe in infant baptism like to use to make their case. It says, this promise is for you and your children. Well, the promise that he's talking about is not baptism. What is the promise? It's in the very phrase right before it. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the context of this entire chapter is about Joel prophesying, the, the prophet Joel prophesying about the, the promised Holy Spirit who would come during the church age and also in the end times. And so that promise is talking about the Holy Spirit. In other words, that this promise of, of the Holy Spirit uh, can, is also not just to you guys, it's also to your children and whoever else has been called by God to salvation. So this has nothing to do with infant baptism as some would like to, to try to make it. And then verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Again, what precedes baptism? Receiving the word of God. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
And so the idea here is that immediately after these people repented and believed, they were baptized. 3,000 people saved, 3,000 people baptized, and 3,000 people continued in the life of the church. Now that sounds a lot different than what we hear today when the evangelistic statistics are given, right? We had 3,000 people come to Christ at this evangelistic rally and, and, and 50 of those people got baptized last week and 20 of them are still coming to our church. And we, we've come a long way from the, the New Testament model. And see, in the minds of, of first century Christians, salvation and baptism were inseparable. And that's why sometimes it's confusing. You're like, whoa, it does kind of sound like they're one and the same, but they're really not. And we know they're not the, the same because of what everything else in the Bible says. But that's how close they viewed them in the New Testament. According to the book of Acts, baptism was the first act of obedience for a new believer. And whenever someone got saved, they were immediately baptized. F.F. Bruce says it this way. He says, quote, The idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. It is not a personal choice, but a divine command. I hope it's true that we don't have any unbaptized Christians who are part of Lakeside Bible Church because that's just not lining up with what the Bible teaches about baptism, that everyone who is a Christian should be baptized at some point. See, baptism is, is not a, a, an optional thing. It's non-optional. It's an act of obedience for everyone who professes to be a Christian. And so we need to be baptized, first of all, because it's command, or, or modeled and commanded by Christ, but secondly, because it was practiced by the early church in the book of Acts. Number three, the question is, who should get baptized? Who should get baptized? And, and based on everything we've learned so far about the meaning and the purpose of baptism, it seems obvious from Scripture what the answer to that question is. Who should get baptized? Those who are saved, right? The, the only people that should get baptized are believers, those who have heard the gospel and received the gospel and repented and believed, those are the people that should be baptized. However, some churches baptize babies. It's what's referred to as infant baptism. Um, and, and it's very important. Don't miss this, okay? Because I, I don't want anybody to be confused about this this morning. But the churches that practice infant baptism don't all do it for the same reason, okay? So don't just lump everybody that baptized babies into one category because that's not fair, Okay? Every church that baptizes infants does it for different reasons. As I mentioned earlier, some, some churches believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And in fact, that's why they baptize their babies, because they believe that baptism saves them. Now, this would be the Catholic Church, again, the Episcopal Church, certain sects of the Lutheran Church. It's what's referred to as a christening, right? And, and, and many, many of you maybe were christened. Some of you may have been christened. Uh, when you were a child, growing up in one of those types of churches. Uh, some of you have even attended some christenings from maybe grandkids or, or um, co cousins and nephews and things like that. And that's always a challenging decision. You're being invited to a christening in a, in a church that you believe is not teaching the truth about what's going on in infant baptism. And you're like, what should I do? And my advice to you is go. You know, you can boycott it if you want, but you're burning your bridge with that family that you could potentially build to share the truth about baptism with them and the truth ultimately about salvation in Christ, not through a work. 
And so I would encourage you to go and be a part of that and, and work on building the relationship there. Show that you love them, even though they may be lost in, 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 lost in their understanding of the truth. I wouldn't recommend you getting up in the middle of the christening and say, this is heresy! You shouldn't do this! This is wrong! You know, don't do that. That's probably not going to go over real big. But maybe afterwards, during the meal, you can say, hey, you know, it's interesting. I, I've never really been a part of a church that, that believes that or t- teaches that. Or, hey, do you realize what happened there, that, what, the, what your church teaches about that? And you know what the Bible teaches about that? And in a very loving, gracious way, you can share the truth. But the point is that, that in these christening uh, situations, they believe that the baby is cleansed from their original sin. That, that the baby's actually regenerated, that they're born again, and that God grants them saving grace even though they're incapable of exercising saving faith. And beloved, that is heresy. That is, that is unbiblical. Now, there's some other churches that, that, that teach infant baptism and, and practice infant baptism that, that aren't heretical, okay? Uh, a lot of the Reformed churches and the Presbyterian churches churches with more of a covenantal view of, of theology. And, uh, and, and again, I feel very like-minded with, with uh, people coming from Reformed churches and, 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 and the Presbyterian churches. There's so much we have in common theologically. This would be one area where we part ways. And, and basically, their view of, of, of infant baptism is simply this, that they make a connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. And they believe that the practice of baptism replaced the practice of circumcision. So therefore, the babies uh, are to be baptized, not to save them, but to make them a member of the covenant community. Now, even that language is vague. It's, it's ambiguous, and it's really not scriptural language. It's this covenant community. And that kind of shows up in, 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 in covenantal writings all the time. And, and, and I'm thinking, where do they get that from? It's, it's part of their relig- theological system. And yet, at the same time, it's not an essential issue for salvation. They don't, they don't believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and so they're not heretical. But the, the covenantal argument for infant baptism lacks any biblical support. And, and I guess I could suffice it to say this, that, that nowhere in Scripture is infant baptism ever even mentioned, either by command or by example. And if you can show me where it is, I'll eat the page. Because it ain't there. Um, you say, well, then why do they believe it and, and why do they practice it? Well, uh, put on your thinking caps with me for a second. Strap on your seatbelt. And we've got to go deep here. The submarine's going to go down a little bit. And we're going to kind of go into some depth here about where they come up with this view of infant baptism. And, and their argument, really, for baptizing uh, babies of believers is, is based primarily on two arguments. And again, we're talking about baptizing babies of believers, okay, within the covenantal community, as it's called. But basically, the, the first argument is this, that Jewish infants were circumcised in the Old Testament as an outward sign of entrance into the Old Covenant that God made with the Jews. True or false? True. That's a true statement. Jewish infants were circumcised in the Old Testament as an outward sign of entrance into the Old Covenant that God made with the Jews. Now, what they say is that baptism is the outward sign of entrance into the new covenant that Christ made with believers in the New Testament. Therefore, babies of believers should be baptized in order to make them a member of the covenant community. Now, there's only one passage in the New Testament that mentions circumcision and baptism 
in the same area, okay, together. And that's Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I want you to look at that verse with me because this is one of the main verses and really one of the only verses that uh, covenantalists can turn to to try to make a case for infant baptism. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. It says here, Paul says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now again, Paul was confronting the, the false teachers who had, who had come into the church of Colossae and were requiring that people be circumcised in order to be saved. We know that was the, the, the heresy that he was constantly confronting, the Judaistic uh, or the Judaizers. But notice here, as he uh, addresses this issue of circumcision, that he doesn't say anything about baptism replacing circumcision. It just so happens that these words are used in the same verse. That doesn't necessarily make a connection between the two. Besides, this verse is not referring to physical circumcision anyway. What kind of circumcision is it talking about? The hard circumcision, circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's talking about the inner transformation of the heart that Christ uh, does in our lives. It's talking about spiritual circumcision. And again, this would be another one of those dry verses, I think, in the context. This is not, when it talks about being buried with him in baptism, it's not necessarily referring to water baptism. It's talking about spirit baptism. And, and so these things aren't even talking, this, this passage isn't even talking about Old Testament circumcision and New Testament water baptism. It's talking about the spiritual aspects of these things. And so really the connection covenantalists make between circumcision and baptism is it really fails to recognize the, the fundamental difference between the old and new covenants. And, and more, maybe stated more simply, the fundamental difference between Israel and the church. And, and, and while there is a lot of similarities, there's a lot of continuity between Israel and the church, and the two seem very similar in the New Testament, there are some, some significant differences. And, and there is a significant difference in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that is this, that the Old Covenant in the Old Testament included every Jew, their children, their servants, and anyone else who lived or associated with them and was willing to go through the rite of circumcision, which in those days was the outward sign that a person was part of the covenant God made with the Jews. But whether or not you truly believed in God didn't matter. As long as you were circumcised, you were part of the covenant community. But the covenant community, if you want to use that phrase, of believers described in the New Testament is very different. It doesn't include children of believers, relatives, or servants that live with them. You remember the, the distinction Jesus made when, when, the, when even John the Baptist made. They said, hey, listen, we're, we're children of Abraham. We don't need to get baptized. We're, we're part of the covenant. And what do they say? Listen, not everybody who's a child of Abraham is a child of Abraham. In other words, you may be a Jew and you may have a physical mark on your body being circumcised that you're a Jew, but guess what? This thing's all about the heart. And only those who are truly saved will experience the blessings of God as promised in the Old Testament. See, according to the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the only ones who have a part in the New Covenant are those who have been truly born again. And a person became a part of the Old Covenant by being born into a Jewish family. But people today don't become a part of the church by simply being born into a Christian family. Just because 
our three children were born into a Christian home doesn't make them a part of the body of Christ. Our children are not a part of the body of Christ until they are born again. See, we become a member of the body of Christ when we come to the place in our life when we personally put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And the outward sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, should only be given to someone who is given evidence of having become a member of the church of Jesus Christ through genuine saving faith in him. And so that's really the, the first argument is they make this connection between circumcision and, and, and baptism, but that is a huge leap that I think you cannot find basis for in the scriptures. It's a theological systematic understanding of the Old and New Testament, which I think misses uh, the very important distinction between Israel and the church. There's a second argument that those who buy into infant baptism in the Reformed tradition uh, hold to, and that is the household baptisms in the New Testament. The household baptisms. And there are five accounts in the New Testament where an entire household was baptized. Uh, You see that uh, in Cornelius' family in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Lydia's family, Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer's family in Acts chapter 16 as well, Crispus's family in Acts chapter 18, and Stephanus's family in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And so uh, you, the, the, the covenantalists look at these passages and say, look, the whole family was baptized, the whole household was baptized, and therefore, you know, babies should be baptized. Well, the problem with that is none of these uh, accounts or passages mention any specific information that would lead us to believe that there were infants living in the households. To say that babies were baptized is purely an assumption and and, and really an argument from silence, and so it's really inconclusive. In fact, I think these uh, household baptism texts really prove believers' baptism more than they prove infant baptism. You say, what do you mean? Well, in every case, it emphasizes that saving faith was demonstrated by all who were baptized. In other words, the entire family had come to Christ, parents and kids alike. And so that's why they all were baptized. And you can look at these, these passages, and, and you can see that, that, that it's very, the, the writer of the book of Acts, specifically in Paul and 1 Corinthians, is careful to talk about those who listened to the word, those who received the word, those who believed were baptized. And so really that is where the Anabaptists came up with their view of believers' baptism. You say, who were the Anabaptists? Well, during the Middle Ages, a group of Reformed believers who were devoted to the study of Scriptures rediscovered in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, the pattern of hearing, believing, and being baptized. That's what you see in all these accounts of the the household baptisms and every other account of people getting baptized in the book of Acts, which we're going to see as we continue our study in that. Uh, over the next few months. But, but in every case, you see that they heard the word, they believed the word, and they were baptized. They heard the word, they believed the word, and they were baptized. And so here were these Reformed believers, okay, guys in the line of Martin Luther and, and, and John Calvin and, 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 and even the, the people we look up to and we affirm, yay, go rah, rah, Reformed theology, right? These were Reformed believers, and they were like, hey, what in the world? Why are we baptizing babies? And by the way, they had all been baptized as babies. And they woke up one day and they said, well, wait a minute. 
according to the New Testament, you had to have heard the gospel and believed the gospel in order to be baptized. And so they concluded, rightfully so, that belief must precede baptism, and therefore their baptism as babies meant nothing in God's eyes. So guess what they did? They got rebaptized as believers. And so that didn't go real well, by the way, um, not just for the Catholic Church of the day, okay? The Catholic Church was mad at the Reformers to begin with, but even the Reformers, the Protestants, got mad at the Anabaptists. In fact, some of the Reformers even killed the Anabaptists. We have a, we have a little movie down there in Brandon's uh, library called The Radicals, and I would encourage you to check it out and take it home and watch it, and it's a great story about the history of the Anabaptists and how they, they really were on the run for their lives for getting rebaptized, and, and even you know people like Martin Luther and others disagreed with what they were doing, and 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 it's just amazing to me because you know Martin Luther is known for uh, being the guy who started the Reformation, right? And and uh, you know he pointed out all the areas that, that 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 tradition had been added to the church and added to the Word of God, and he zealously confronted the relics of the Catholic Church, and he and yet he continued to practice infant baptism. And so here's the guy that, 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 that was credited, who is credited with restoring the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone, and yet he continued to practice infant baptism. It's crazy. But it's a good reminder that even the best theologian is only what? 80% right. So it's important for all of us sitting here this morning to say, hey, it doesn't really matter what Luther said. It doesn't really matter what Calvin said. It doesn't really matter what, what my former pastor said or what Ken's saying. What does the Bible say? And you've got to figure this issue out on your own with an open Bible. And wherever you land on this deal, you better be able to back up your position with the Bible, period. And if you choose to take a different position, you better just be able to, 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 to prove it from the Scriptures. Not from tradition, not from a theological system, but from the verses and the words of Scripture. And so those of us who hold to believers' baptism really stand in the, in, in the tradition of the Anabaptists. And what they said and what we say is that baptism is only to be administered to those who have heard the gospel and have trusted in Christ for salvation, not those who have yet to believe in Christ. And see, infants are included in the category of unbelievers. And so those who advocate infant baptism must say that baptism symbolizes one thing for infants and another thing for those who come to faith in Christ as adults. And, and they don't want to say that it causes regeneration because they know that's, her, that's heretical. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. And we don't want to go there. But at the same time, they don't want to say it, it just symbolizes regeneration that has already occurred, which I think the Bible teaches. Wayne Grudem is very helpful in his little book called Bible Doctrine. And he suggests the only alternative for the covenantal uh, position. He says the only alternative seems to be to say that, it sim that baptism symbolizes a regeneration that will occur in the future when the infant is old enough to come to saving faith. But even that is not quite accurate because it's not certain that the infant will be regenerated in the future. Some infants who are baptized never come to saving faith later. And so he says the only thing that's left for them is to say that this baptism maybe symbolizes probable regeneration. Well, you show me that in the scriptures. Where, where is that idea or concept of probable regeneration ever associated with the practice of baptism? 
See, the Bible never speaks of baptism as a sign of what might happen, but what has already happened. And you look at all the verses, again, that we've already looked at. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. And all these verses say that those who have been baptized have been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and have put on Christ. None of these spiritual realities apply to a baby. And so baptism was never administered in anticipation of salvation, but always as a demonstration of salvation. And I think Grudem is spot on when he concludes. He says, baptism in the New Testament is a sign of being born again, being cleansed from sin, and beginning the Christian life. It seems fitting to reserve this sign for those who give evidence that that is exactly true or or actually true in their lives. Well said. And so in summary, let me just kind of make it all, hopefully simplify everything. You're just going, whoa, where is he going? Trying to write down all this fire hose stuff. But it's very simple. Infant Infant baptism is not taught or exemplified anywhere in the New Testament. Whereas believer's baptism is both taught and exemplified all over the New Testament. So you take your pick, right? I think we can safely conclude that infant baptism is an unbiblical tradition that was added to the church somewhere in the 3rd or 4th century and has been perpetuated ever since. Now, having said all that, I would not be fair unless I said this, that not every faithful student of God's word agrees with that conclusion. And while I and the elders of this church feel very strongly about this issue, we understand it's not an essential issue that should cause us to part fellowship with those who take a different view. And we hope those that take a different view don't feel the need to part fellowship with us. And in fact, we, we prove that because when it comes to becoming a member of our church, we don't require people who were baptized as an infant in the Reformed tradition to get rebaptized. Now, if you were baptized in the Catholic tradition, we say, yeah, you need to get rebaptized because that was heretical, clearly. But those who come with having been baptized as a baby in the Reformed tradition and they feel like their conscience says that that was a biblical uh, definition of baptism, uh, we don't require them to be rebaptized. However, we strongly encourage them to rethink the issue and reconsider and restudy their, their view in light of what the Bible teaches about baptism and, like I said, more importantly, what the Bible doesn't say about baptism. And, and I take my lead from, from two of my... Uh, faraway mentors, if you will, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, who are able to have a friendly debate at the beginning of a Ligonier conference several years back in Pasadena, and they were both able to get up and defend their position, believer's baptism versus infant baptism, and still be able to come and hug and shake hands when it was all over with, but uh, adamantly opposed to one another when it came to their understanding of baptism, but still very gracious and, and loving and warm towards one another. One other issue about who should be baptized, and uh, that, that's in regards to the appropriate age to get baptized. If you're saying, well, we don't baptize babies, and the Bible doesn't give us any indication that bapti- babies were ever baptized, so how old should a person be uh, when they get baptized? Well, I think God leaves that up to the elders of any given church to determine that for their particular church. And uh, we've talked about this as elders, and we just feel like it's wise to wait until a person reaches adulthood, which, you know, the best we can come up with is the definition of adulthood is the bar mitzvah, right, in the Jewish tradition, 12, 13 years old, a boy became a man, a girl became a woman, 
and so it's junior high. You say, well, why, why do you set that kind of the junior high age? Why don't you baptize my child uh, who, who, is, who has professed faith in Christ? Uh, all three of our kids have professed faith in Jesus Christ. They claim to be Christians. We are, we're excited about that. We're praying for them. We're praying that that's genuine. We're looking for fruit, right? But we're also waiting until a couple things take place. One is, I think the longer you wait, the more opportunity a, a person has to demonstrate the fruit of salvation. In other words, the parents can see it, the youth pastors can see it, the elders can see it, the, the child himself can see it, right? Say, yeah, I, I really see the evidence that, that I am truly saved. Um, you know, as a youth pastor in California, I, I re-baptized way too many teenagers and, and who had come to come to Christ, made a profession of faith, prayed a prayer when they were five, six years old and got immediately baptized. And then they went to summer camp one year and they heard the gospel and man, they got saved. I mean, they, re- they truly repented and they truly came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they came to us and said, I, we feel like we need to get re-baptized. And I just, there was, there was confusion there for the church. And I said, man, let's just clear up the confusion and let's just wait to make sure these kids know for sure they're saved. And then we'll get them baptized. And, and, and also, it, it just gives them uh, time to, to be able to articulate their testimony and, and their, their, their salvation experience uh, in a way that can be a blessing and an encouragement to our entire body. And so again, I can't show you chapter and verse uh, for the, the age level we've determined here at this church. It's just what we're doing based on our wisdom. And uh, so anyway, hopefully that works for you. Uh, if you think you have some kind of special uh, case uh, you can talk to us, but uh, people have done that in the past, and we've worked through it with them. So anyway, that's who should get baptized. Number four, quickly, and these last two ones are, are pretty, pretty obvious, so we won't have to take a whole lot of time on them, but number four is how should we get baptized? How should we get baptized? Okay, there, there are three basic modes of baptism, ways to be baptized. You can be sprinkled, you can get some water poured on you, or you can be dunked, right? And I'll just say this, immersion is the only form of baptism taught in the Bible. Okay? You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the grammatical evidence, first of all, points to that. In other words, the words that are used to describe baptism. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo, which literally means to dip or immerse completely, to totally submerge. Even sometimes it's translated in in Greek manuscripts as to drown. Okay, it's pretty clear what baptizo means, right? Immersion. This was a word used to describe the process of dipping a piece of cloth and dye. And, and it's, it's easy to miss that meaning, that literal meaning of, of baptizo, because most English translations, most Bibles that you have, simply have transliterated the Greek word rather than translated. In other words, you see baptism everywhere where that word baptizo is used in the original language. But I would, I would, I would tell you this, and you can do this, kind of just to test this. You can insert the word immersion every time you see the word baptism and it fits perfectly because uh, that's what that word means. So there's the gram- grammatical evidence, uh, but also there's practical evidence. I mean, the occasions where people were baptized in Scripture. And, and, and you just look at the wording surrounding baptism. When you, Christ's baptism in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3, it talks about him coming out of or up from the Jordan River. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, it says he went down into and came up out of the water. Uh, John the Baptist was baptizing where? In the Jordan River. Why? It says clearly because there was much water there. John 3, 23. 
the point is you, you need a river if you're going to be immersing people, right? If all you were doing is sprinkling people, just grab a bucket and go walking around splashing water in people's face or pouring it on their head, right? But he needed a river. Why? Because he was immersing people. And besides, baptism by immersion most fully illustrates a person's salvation, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and of the person when they come to faith in Christ. And the other forms of baptism miss the symbolism that I think is intended in baptism. Last question, what are the benefits of baptism? What are the benefits of baptism? You say, if baptism doesn't save me, then what's the point? I mean, what does it do? What are the benefits that we receive as believers when we're baptized? Well, I can think of a, of a few. First of all, we experience the blessings of obedience. God always blesses us when we obey. And, and baptism is an act of obedience. And so we can expect God to bless us because we are doing what he commanded us to do. I think secondly, we're, we're strengthened in our faith. I mean, it is a faith-strengthening experience to, to be able to get up in front of people and, and, and talk about your faith in Jesus Christ. It just strengthens your faith. It emboldens you. I mean, I remember... Uh, baptizing students when I was a youth pastor and, and, and they had to literally stand up in front. You think, you know, getting baptized at Lakeside is tough. I mean, they had to stand up in front of 3,500 3, 3, people on a Sunday night with spotlights on them. You couldn't even see who was out there and they had to pro- proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ and we would take them back down in the basement afterwards and say, now listen, you just preached the gospel to 3,500 people. Why can't you go talk to the guy sitting next to you in school tomorrow? You know, it's just, it's just a faith-strengthening experience. I think also it makes us more accountable. And you get up in front of your church and say, listen, I'm a Christian, and I'm one of you. You're, you're asking them to hold you accountable. And, and, and there's been times when I've actually held people accountable to what they said in the baptiz- waters of baptism. You said this three years ago when you got baptized, but why are you living this way now? So it's a, it's a source of accountability. And then finally, I think it's just an incredible opportunity, maybe the best opportunity uh, you'll have to share the gospel. Um, Surely it might be the largest crowd you ever preached to, but it really is an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, You get to to preach the gospel and then say, hey, check out this illustration. Right? Let me illustrate my little sermon. And and so whenever we get get together before our baptism service with the people that are getting baptized, Number one, we tell them, make sure you share the gospel in your testimony. And number two, we get together and we pray. And we say, Lord, I pray that, that you would use these testimonies, that if there's anyone out here tonight listening to these testimonies that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would repent and believe as they hear the gospel and they see the testimony of these people standing up boldly proclaiming their faith in Christ. So baptism services are, are one of the best evangelistic events that a church has in their arsenal. And so that's why we say, hey, invite all your unsaved friends and family to our baptism services because they're going to hear the gospel. However many people you got getting baptized, they're going to hear the gospel five times, 10 times, 12 times, however many times people share. And they're going to see 12 illustrations of salvation. Right? It's, it's all about salvation. Those are just some of the benefits of baptism. Let me close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, quote, Nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than that it is the duty of every believer in Christ 
to be baptized. Have you been baptized since you made a conscious commitment to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, based on the, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say, you should get rebaptized. You should get baptized or you should get rebaptized. And so there's a real practical way for you to apply this message and to be a, a doer of the word, not just merely hear the word. We got a baptism sign up sheet out in the foyer. And if you are convicted this morning and say, man, I need to get baptized. Um, I need to get rebaptized. Then you go and sign up. The class starts next week. We'll help you get ready. And we'll be praying that God will use this opportunity to just radically strengthen your faith, but also give us an opportunity as a church to really evangelize the lost within our church and the visitors that we bring uh, to our service on March 8th. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to be challenged with the teaching of Scripture regarding baptism. And I know that uh, there probably are some people just really wrestling in their own hearts. Uh, First, just maybe with the fact that they've never been baptized, but others with just their theological understanding of it and whether or not it lines up with Scripture. And I just pray that we would all be good Bereans and we take this message and we go back to your word and we'd really search out the truth for ourselves and that you would bring us to the most... uh, the position that is closest to what your word teaches, Father, and that we would live it out, whatever that is. Thank you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.